Romans chapter 8, verse number 17. I do hope you'll be back with us for the evening service tonight. You'll bring your Bible and come along. Ryan Mitchell will be preaching, and then we'll observe communion in that service. So hope you'll come and join us for that if you know the Lord. For now, let me invite you to look at verses 17 and 18 in Romans chapter 8, two verses of Scripture. Call your attention to Romans 8, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon, or I count, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Two verses of Scripture. And this morning of the basis of the foundation from which I speak to you about suffering is God's will for those who are in God's will. And that's what this passage of Scripture is really going to say and will say. And we'll dissect it a bit as we go along. But let me remind you as I remind myself that here in Romans chapter 8, Paul is setting forth several proofs. Uh, we call them checkpoints. And that's what I think they are. They're checkpoints regarding us, you and me, being sure that we're born again, sure that we're in God's family. Contrary to what the world at large believes, uh, everybody is not a child of God. God is not the father of everybody. The Bible nowhere teaches that. God is creator God, and he created everything, but he is not the father of everybody. And consequently, the world takes the idea that uh, reference the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, and they take some solace in that, that when they die, they're going to heaven because God is their father and he's gone there to prepare a place. That's what the devil would like for you to believe, and if you believe it, you've been tricked. What he didn't tell you is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, that's Christ, should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how you get into heaven. Not just knowing there's a God or believing there's a God. That doesn't cut it and doesn't do anything. The devils believed and trembled. So it doesn't have a, 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 what we call any kind of merit to it. The merit was all accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world and dying for sinners, Paul said, of whom I'm chief. And consequently, whether you believe on Christ or not, is what dictates whether you go to heaven. And what dictates whether you're in the family of God. Well, Paul put forth to the church at Rome several of these checkpoints. And let me call your attention to them again so you don't forget them. In verse number 9, in verse number 9 he said, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. So one checkpoint is this. If you have the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that's a sure proof that you're a child of God. In verse number 14, it says, Likewise, being led of the Spirit is a sure proof that you're a child of God, if you're led by the Spirit. Thirdly, in verse 16, he said, Having the witness of the Holy Spirit with your spirit is a sure proof that you're a child of God. Last week and even today, verse 17, being an heir of God, that's an unseen benefit for the moment. If you have and you are an heir of God, then the Bible is declaring that you are a child of God. But also in the text in verse 17 is very simply that if you suffer with Christ, you are His. And that's the one that we somehow have a little bit of trouble with. If we suffer with Him. I remind you that in verse 17, there's a, the three words. Note them, if you would. In verse 17, it says, If children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ. But then notice the next three. If so be. 
Uh, in the Greek, that's just one word, and that one word is used six times in the New Testament. And in that usage, it does not mean or does it imply doubt. It's not suggesting if you suffer. It's not saying that. In fact, the best way to look at it is what he wrote in chapter 8 and verse number 9, where he said, But ye are not in the flesh. This is Romans 8 verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And that's the fact. The Spirit of God does dwell in them, so the if so be is not in question or in doubt. The if so be is a statement of assurance in saying this is absolutely the way it is. When Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 5, he was talking about the idols and gods, and he said, though they be. Well, that's the same Greek word. It's not as if to ask, is it? Is it possible? Or is there a doubt about this? No, no. These are idols and these are gods. And Paul was saying, though they be. And he went on in Second Thessalonians in chapter 6. And he used it again. He used it there. And the phrase says, seeing it is. Uh, some translations have that same phrase. Because it is. Because it is. My point is, in all six instances, it's not a doubt. It's a fact. And so what he says in verse number 17 here is, If children then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, therefore we suffer with him. That's the ideal. You're going to suffer with Christ if you belong to him. And that's the catch. Most people don't believe that. They say, you kidding me? I got saved so I wouldn't have to suffer. I was told there's a hell and if you, if you rejected Christ, you'd spend eternity in hell. And I trusted Christ so I wouldn't suffer. And you're telling me you're going to suffer? Yes, just not in hell. And that's a fact. In fact, the matter is that most folks had the idea that, you know, they don't want any part of suffering. There's some churches that refuse to allow you mention suffering in God in the same sentence. I read of a letter that was written to a, a local church and someone got a copy of it, put it in a magazine, and I read the letter. And in the letter, it was a reprimand to a member of the church who in a testimonial time referred to suffering in God in the same sentence. And the man was reprimanded for the whole church. Their ideal is God and suffering doesn't go together. And I've got news for them. The Bible says suffering in Christ go together just like hand and glove. Our problem is that we've been taught something so contrary to that so long that it's hard for us to embrace it. And especially hard when you come to chapter number 8 and in verse 17 especially. Think about what he was just talking about in verse 17. He was talking about heirship. He was talking about an inheritance. He was talking about when the will of God is read to the heirs, as it were. And he's saying that you're an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And the next thing out of Paul's pen is, by the way, you're going to have to suffer with Christ. See, inheritance and being an heir and suffering doesn't seem to go together. But in the consequence of the Christian life, it does go together. In fact, it's a very vital part. They think only of people today, think only of feeling good and, and think only of the fuzzy, warm feelings about everybody else. The sad fact is that's not the way it was and that's not the way it is. The truth of the matter is that our songs of our Christian faith, and there's a ton of them, but I just pulled out three. These were from a, 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 a book, I believe, uh, I believe Todd and Trina gave me this book. And this book is about the songs of our faith. And this particular um, section on here was about uh, churches and the songs they used and why they used them. But you'll be amazed. The background of many of the songs that are sung in our songbook, and this particular song isn't in our songbook, it's called The Church's One Foundation. The third verse says, Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. 
till with the vision, glorious, her longing eyes are bliss, and the great church victorious shall then be the church at rest. Well, the fact of the matter is this is about challenges and tribulation and trials and trouble. In fact, basically the whole song's that. What you don't know is the, the story behind it, which makes the song more sensible. First off, uh, in uh, the writing of this song, it's, uh, it was written of the Church of England. And the Church in England, of course, you know, has the Apostles' Creed. Well, the song, The Church is One Foundation, is written on the ninth of the creeds, which is about the church being the universal church. Or, by the way, uh, don't let it confuse you when people talk about the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church, there's the Roman Catholic Church, but there's the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church is just simply the word universal. So if some guy gets on television and talks about the universal church, he's not talking about Roman Catholicism. He's talking about, quote, all the Christians, okay? So don't let them confuse you. If they say, well, the universal church, they should use universal, especially since a Roman Catholic church says we're Roman Catholics. But it's not necessarily when you hear a guy talk about the Catholic church that he's talking about Roman Catholic. Get that understanding. And that's the case here. This song was written as a Catholic. That is a universal truth. And it was about the universal church, about all Christians everywhere. And when this guy wrote it, he wrote it as an Anglican priest and preacher. And what happened is, very simply, there was a turmoil in the church. A bishop over in Africa began to teach that Moses did not write the first six books of the Bible. And boy, a real flare-up came over. People thought, man, alive, uh, this is bad, this is awful. This guy's writing off the first six books of the Bible has been written by Moses. And that was a big deal. And by the way, when I was in school, it was a big deal. And then there was such controversy over it that a local bishop or the bishop over the whole district removed the man, put him out of that church, out of his post. And consequently, this man, the man who Samuel Stone in this case, wrote the church's one foundation to try to reestablish the encouragement of the bishops and the preachers and all those who had churches in that district. And he wrote this song with the hopes that it would be a, a sort of a marching song of confidence that we need to get back on track and, and leave this controversy behind us and about Moses and the first foot, five, six books and whatever, or five books of the Bible and try to move forward. And he wrote this song to try to squail the sufferings that were being placed upon that local church when that particular problem came up. Sufferings. The song that uh, you and I are familiar with, I'm... We used to sing it in our Presbyterian church quite frequently. It was the lily of the valley. In verse 1, I have a friend in Jesus. He's everything to me. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. The lily of the valley, in him alone I see. All I need to cleanse and make me fully whole. In sorrow, he's my comfort. In trouble, he's my stay. He tells me every care on him to roll. And then he goes on, he's the lily of the valley. This song was written, which is interesting here, is that um, Booth, who is the founder, William Booth, who is the founder of the Salvation Army, began to go around preaching and teaching and um, urging people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Did a lot of street preaching. Well, consequently, he uh, began, began calling it the Salvation Army. Well, people began to hear about it. And as they did, people were interested in what's this Salvation Army thing. So what happened? William Booth went into a place in, in London, and uh, he was preaching there. And as he was preaching there, people began to throw rocks and bricks and sticks and everything else at him. And so he'd move from that location, go to another. And so consequently, came about that he moved to a section of the country, and um, one construction worker technically found out that he was he was coming to their area and he'd heard about him being abused and persecuted on the streets people throwing things at him 
And so this man, and I understand the story goes, he's a pretty good sized man, went to William Booth and said, Our, my sons and I, I have three, we will be your bodyguards. We'll take care of you. When you come to preach on our streets, we'll stand with you. We'll make sure nobody does anything. Well, uh, William Booth wasn't too keen on that because he didn't want to look like he was protected by bodyguards, and I understand that. But when the man showed up the next day, each of the young men had instruments, clarinet, trombone, and they couldn't understand. How in the world are you going to protect us from that? They said, we'll play music, and it'll keep the people settled. That was the first Salvation Army band that ever played, and it was played to protect Booth while he preached. And consequence of that was that Salvation Army grew rapidly and went from city to city with a Salvation Army band playing while Booth would get up and preach. And many people, multitudes of people came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as you well know. It was born out of persecution and suffering. There'd be no Salvation Army as we know it today had it not been that William Booth had been persecuted and had indeed suffered. He was injured on several occasions for his faith in Jesus Christ. We know so little about that. There's also the song that is my favorite. There are all the words I don't have in this particular sheet music, but it's the song, He Hideth My Soul. As a pastor, I don't know of any song that so encourages my heart. And when I'm alone in my office and I sit down and read all the verses of it, as this song, here are only two of them. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock, where rivers of pleasure I see. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love, and he covers me there with his hand. And he covers me there with his hand. Verse number two, when clothed in his brightness, transported I rise to meet him in clouds of the sky. His perfect salvation, his wonderful love, I'll shout with the millions on high. And then the chorus again. What's interesting about this is that Fanny Crosby wrote it. Most of us know that Fanny Crosby was blind. What many of us may not know is that Fanny Crosby was uh, uh, also had other tragedies. One, she got married and was married for a very short time, and for no apparent reason, her husband left. Fanny Crosby was left, and, and as her and her husband uh, were expecting a child, she had that child. And that child died early, very early uh, in his birth. In fact, so early that no one to this day can tell you whether it was a boy or a girl. She never spoke about it. She never said a word about it. She never told family and she never told friends. She buried that baby. Her husband was gone. He did not return. And she went on with her life. It was after that that she wrote the song, He Hideth My Soul. I relate to that. I mean, here's a woman in great heartache. Her husband's gone. She's birthed a child, and the child is dead. And uh, I can understand that. I mean, I can relate to the heartache she must have had. My point is, much of our music is born out of suffering. It's born out of hardship. It's born out of trouble. It's born out of trials. And the fact of the matter is some of the sweetest music in all of our language of scriptural music is that which was born out of the hearts of people who had to really fight to keep their head above water. And I say to you, so the thing about it is it's not always been bad. It's given us some of our best music. Someone a few weeks ago in a magazine that I picked up that was encouraging local churches to begin to write its own music and to be a little more... Um, 
may we say, peppy. This guy wrote a section in this, and he would happen to be of the old school. In fact, he was being criticized in this magazine. He made this quote. He said he referred to the music in some churches as party tunes. People who wrote the magazine didn't like what he was saying, and they were criticizing him. And they were saying, yes, the church should be a big party. We should understand that this is just the way God wants it to be, a big party. You'll forgive me, but that's just not being realistic. That's not the way life really is. Life is not just one big party. And it should not be considered that because the scriptures don't consider it that. It considers it a serious matter. So serious that everybody's going to live somewhere forever. And what you do in this life is going to have some impact over there somehow, some way. It may be that if your faithfulness and service here, you get a greater responsibility there. I don't know the details, but I do know this. This life counts, and it counts big time when we shut the lights out. And I say to you that it's important to have fun and enjoy life in its context, absolutely. But I would tell you that you best be careful doing that in church. Because church is a place where we hear the solemn responsibilities that God has laid down in His Word, and then we are, by His Spirit, supposed to go out and follow through and emulate and obey those. And it's awfully hard to do that in a party atmosphere. Too much party makes people think that it's not serious. It's fun. It's pleasure. It's not real. It's no big deal. It, it is a big deal. And for that reason, I tend toward liking a service a little more serious. And I tend to believe that's what God would ordain. Because I read history of the early church, and I found out something that sometimes actually bothers me and convicts me. One writer in the olden days, as we called them, or the early days of the early church wrote, being a Christian in our time is to mean to certainly to suffer. To be a Christian in our day is most certainly to be a sufferer. How come they suffered and we don't? I mean, I gave up my daily journal, and John and others of you did, Miss Sanders and others of you who called, and we gave them up, and must I tell you, I, I missed my paper in the morning. I, I missed it. But am I suffering? No, I doubt it. Not what the Scriptures classify as suffering. Let me show you a passage. This is a good one. Look, if you would, at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Great passage, chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Look at verse number 12. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. The Bible says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. The verse of Scripture is saying that it's a very common thing for believers to suffer, so don't think it a strange thing. By the way, understand this. The more you blend in to this world, the more strange suffering will seem to you. See, the more you blend in with this world, this world system in which we're operating, the more you blend into it, the more strange suffering will be to you. So I say to you, as Peter says to you, don't think it's strange. Don't be so blended in this place that suffering would not be expected. You see, if you get too acquainted with this world and you get too much mixed with this world, you'll never have one person ever in any sense of the word reproach you or, or abuse you verbally or, or be unkind to you or make you suffer. You will never suffer in this world as a Christian if you blend with this world. If you and them are just like this, you'll never suffer. 
you go to work and you never open your mouth and tell them you're a Christian, you'll never suffer. If you don't look different, act different, speak different, pray over your food and have your language, con as it were, controlled by what the Spirit of the Lord would have you say, you'll never suffer. You'll never suffer. But buddy, when you're different, you'll suffer. I've reminded you before, as I remind you again this morning, that my father and I worked in chicken houses in the South, and we sold chickens to uh, the Swift Chicken Company, I guess is the way to describe it. And we had 18,000 chickens, 9,000 in two houses. And I'll tell you what, they were white-legger. And you let one chicken get a spot on him anywhere, of a white feather, and you let him get one spot on that chicken. And the rest of them would pick, peck him to death. They'd kill that chicken over that spot. One reason. One reason. And I don't know. Some folks say chickens are blind. Maybe they are. But they can sure tell a spot on white feather. Because every day, one of my jobs was to go through that chicken house and pick up the chickens that had been pecked to death. And every single time, you'd find out some had gotten under a feeder and he'd gotten a streak of oil on his back. And they'd pecked at the oil to the point trying to get him. And they'd pecked right into his heart and kill him. You'd see some would peck into the necks where they'd rub up against something that had uh, uh, dirt on it and it'd be a speck on his neck and they'd peck his neck until he bled to death. Just because he's different. Just because he's different. Well, let me tell you something. That's the ideal here as Peter sets it forth is don't you think it's strange if you really are a Christian that you would have suffering? Don't think it's strange. If you're not blending, I'll guarantee you, you're suffering. Verse 13, he says, but rejoice. Wait a minute. Peter, you're saying we're going to suffer, but you're telling us not to be unhappy, not to murmur, not to whine, not to be upset, not to be angry. Peter would say, yes, I'm telling you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be able also with exceeding joy. Verse number 14, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the Spirit of God and of the God resteth upon you on your part. He is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Verse 16, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let him that suffer according to the will of God. And that's an important statement. Let him that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Two or three things, and these are exceedingly important things. This passage of Scripture written about folks who are under the gun. They were under the tap of suffering and of pain and difficulty that comes with it. There are two or three points I'd make. In verse 15, it makes it emphatically clear that you're not to suffer as an evildoer. That's an important thing because, you see, there are folks who get into trouble and in some cases folks who have actually murdered someone. They got into prison and they turned to Christ and were gloriously saved. And invariably I'm asked the question, do you believe in capital punishment in those cases? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Becoming a Christian does not change the consequences of what you did that was wrong for which you have to pay. It doesn't change that. 
So there's no such thing as a jailhouse conversion that's going to get you out from under the punishment. And just because a thief who maybe robbed a thousand homes goes into jail and somebody shares the gospel, it does not give him a pass out of jail the next day. He pays the price. And so this passage of Scripture literally supports that mandate that if a man does that which is evil and he suffers for it, that's God's pleasure. You're getting exactly what God wants you to have. You're getting paid for your sin. Consequently, it also makes an important sense in verse number 19 to make sure that you suffer if you suffer within the will of God. There is a suffering that's outside the will of God, and the Scripture is very clear about that. I'll not take the time here to read it, but I remind you that in Hebrews chapter 12, a passage in beginning in about verse 5 talks about the chastening of the Lord. And that chastening is for those folks who suffer outside the will of God. When a man steps outside the boundaries of God's word, he's going to get into trouble. His life is going to reflect the fact that he is rebelling against God and he is going to suffer for that. And God may bring into his life chastening to bring him back in line with his will. That suffering is out of the will of God. This is point made contextually in verse number 19 of 1 Peter is to say, you just make sure all of your suffering is inside the will of God. You make sure whenever you suffer, you suffer for doing right, not for doing wrong. That's his point. Another passage of scripture that I read this week in lieu of the message and an important part of it was the fact that when it comes to suffering as Christians, we usually suffer in proportion to the testimony and our witness that's made public. Just as I said a moment ago, Paul wrote it in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 12. He says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. What that means is the more secretive you are concerning your faith and your relationship to Christ, the less likely you are that you'll suffer. The word there in the context of Paul's writings of 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, all that live godly. Living is a lifestyle. It's a day in, day out, evening in, evening out kind of thing. It's what you do on a continuous basis. And the point made about that is the more that you live in reflection of a relationship to Jesus Christ, the more you're going to suffer. If you bring up a conversation with people whom you have to do in a social circle or something about your faith in Jesus Christ, it's almost a given. There will be some folks around who agree with you and say, oh, by the way, I have too. And they'll serve as an encourager and someone who will be a blessing to you. But in the same group, there may be people who will disdain you for that. There may be people who will literally write you off. They're just not interested in talking to you at all because they don't think you have reasoning power since you're a Christian. Let me say this to you. See, this is no friend of grace, this world. This world has absolutely no respect whatsoever for those people who love the Lord and want to serve Him and live for Him. But I've got news for you. The fact of the matter is... The Bible declares it straight up. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love you, and it loves his own. But because ye are not of the world, but have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. And here's a test for you. Here's a test for you. How do you get along in the world? How is it that you are, uh, are I guess I tra- put it this way, are you a traitor to Jesus Christ? You see, the world hated him. Does it love you? Does it love you? It hated him, I remind you. If you've been saved by the grace of God, your Savior was hated by this world. How do you get along with him? Do you just close your mouth and go along with the flow, or do you speak up or stand up? 
You see, the temptation is to keep your mouth shut and everything will be hunky-dory. I can get through this thing. But that's not the will of God for you. The will of God for you is that you may suffer because you're supposed to speak up. You're supposed to let people know who you are. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And a little appendic note would say, and you're probably going to suffer for this. And you're probably going to suffer for this. I say to you something I read and I may even repeat next week. There was a story in a, in a book. It was about some people in China. There's an underground church in China that's been thriving for years. They don't get any press and they don't want any. But the fact is they've been they've smelled out many letters and some of those letters get into books and some of those letters get into magazines. And one interesting one, uh, uh, a man who did the magazine, the guy was a publisher of it, he put this on a page and he, he gave a scenario at his house. And the scenario was he had a 14-year-old a thir- a girl in his home that he had reprimanded for m- misbehaving in use of the computer. And so he had taken away her privileges of the computer, the phone, and television for a week. She cried for two hours. And he wrote the thing in there, and his daughter wrote him a letter and wrote the letter that she was really upset, she was really hurt, she was really suffering emotionally over this whole thing, and she told her dad everything she felt about it. In the same thing, to his credit, he wrote a letter that he got out of China from a, what they call an underground church, 14-year-old girl. She wrote a letter to someone, a pastor or assistant pastor in the little underground church, and that letter was sent out and got into America. 14-year-old girl, she was weeping and had been weeping for days over the fact that somebody in her church had been arrested for suffering for Christ. That is, they were arrested because they'd handed out some literature and it fell in the hands of some officials and they came and arrested the person who gave the material and they were going to be put in incarceration and they were going to be held there for maybe as much as six months for handing out one track. And this little girl wrote to this uh, pastor or assistant pastor and told about how much she had wept and cried. And the pastor, as he was reading it, obviously wasn't sure where it was going. What's their point of telling me how much she's wept and she's cried? It got down to the bottom part of the letter and the weeping was over that she did not get to suffer for Christ. I thought, boy, that's sort of a telltale. We weep and cry because we get the television, the phone, the computer taken away. And here's a kid, 14 years of age, who's trusted Christ in, in China in an underground church. And she has none of those privileges and blessings. And it is that the thing that bothered her and the thing she's wept so much about is the fact she can't suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ the way this elder in the church had. I say to you, the fact is that suffering is a part of our relationship with Jesus Christ. There are two or three things I point out to you before we close. First off, I think there are two points that we must emphasize before we finish, and that's this. First, you must ever keep before you that the world hates Christians because we serve as their conscience. Because we serve as their conscience. I'll give you a good illustration of this. It's in your Bible. It's in the book of Matthew. It's in chapter number 14. Matthew chapter 14, you know the story. You could probably tell it without reading it, but let me read it to be exact. It's Matthew 14. It's verse number one. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Verse number 6, And Herod's birthday was kept. The daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. 
Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John the Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel. She brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up his body and buried it and did the only thing it was left to do, went and told Jesus. Now that's a microcosm of what it is for you and I in our world presently. And I mean by that simply this. You see, John was Herod's and Herodias's conscience. That's exactly what he was. The first thing they do, obviously, is they just complained about him. And then from their complaints, they decided they, they, they hated him. And then from their hatred, they thought, well, we'll persecute him. And then from persecution, they led on to punishing him. They put him in prison. And that wasn't enough. There's only one way to deal with this. And their decision was, let's kill him. Let's just shut off the conscience. If we shut down the conscience, we, we won't hear him talking about this. And there won't be any kind of conviction about this. Let's just kill the guy. And that's why they killed John the Baptist. Don't you ever get anybody else's liberal idea. That's why they killed him. Because he was conscience to both of them. Herod and Herodias, and in Herod's case, though he made the oath and would not, I personally believe, kill John the Baptist. I believe Herodias would have killed him and cut him up in pieces and served him at McDonald's if that was possible. I think she had a great and holy hatred for him. By the way, it's this kind of thing that is exactly what goes on in our world today. You see, the world system you and I live in is at the same time both an enemy and a mission field. And that's what you've got to be careful about. It's an enemy, but it's also our mission field. It's where we operate. It's where we take the gospel. It's where we share it. I say this to you, the homosexual community in our area of Johnson County, the greatest enemies they have is the church and Christians. You know why? They think that we don't love them. They think that we're out to get them, and we're not. We're, one, out to stop their behavior in the sense of it affecting our people. And, two, we're out to help them come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we become conscience to them, and they don't like that. They love their lifestyle, they love their sin, and their interest is, is to maintain what they're doing and keep doing it. And no matter what you or I do, you must keep before you that these are sinners who need to be saved by the grace of God. So don't ever get to a point where you hate them so badly and hate their behavior so badly that your hatred drifts over into them. It's not them that we hate, it's their behavior. We hate sin, and we ought to hate sin wherever we find it. And it ought not be any different with them than anybody else's sin. Sin is sin. And if God says it's sin, you ought to hate it. And by the way, it ought to be a thing that you never, ever move off of any kind of trying to explain to homosexuals something that God has not already declared. I mean by that, don't compromise what he stated. Don't try to make it sound acceptable when you read the passages in Romans chapter 1. Just let God speak for himself. Don't try to interpret things back. Just let the scriptures speak for themselves. Everywhere there's an allusion to homosexuality, you let God speak for it. Because God blesses his word, and that's if there's to be conviction brought, it can be brought by God's Holy Spirit, not by our arguments. So it'll do you no good to sit down with one to try to persuade them out of a lifestyle. And by the way, a very good word that Paul brings to us in Philippians chapter 2 about this is, he wrote it in chapter 2, verse 15. He says that ye may be blameless and harmless the sons of God without rebuke. And that's important. 
that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Let me put that in a, a little more practical kind of setting for you. It means don't shoot yourself in the foot by misbehaving in a sinful way so they can turn right around and point to you and say, you don't do any different. See, one of our problems in dealing with homosexuality is all the breakups of the marriages of heterosexuals. See, that's killing us. It's killing us big time. They're saying, hey, look, you did it your way, and you say God permitted that, and God encourages that, and yet all of the marriages have broken up in heterosexual community. Let us try it our way. See, it's a, it's a big mountain to climb over. And we just simply say, sin is sin. We don't care where it happens. And it doesn't matter to us whether it's homosexual or heterosexual. Sin is sin. God hates all of it. So we've not said that we're perfect and you're not. That's not the point. It's just simply this. Anytime human beings try to do things their way, I'll guarantee you, they'll get off track. And that's the problem. And that's the problem. And I say to you that that's exactly what you need to come back to in dealing with it every single time. By the way, something else to be noted, and this is an important point. Not only the world hates us because we're their conscience, but don't you ever forget this. The world hates Jesus Christ. Now, they'll talk about God, and you know that. They'll talk about him, they relate to him, they refer to him, etc. But the fact is, they just don't know him. They don't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. It reminds me is that um, Negro spiritually, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. And don't be fooled, everybody talking about God doesn't know him. Everybody talking about God does not know him. And I realized that even as I read this week in John chapter 14 and verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. The truth of the matter is that to the degree that you're uncertain about Jesus Christ and God is the degree to which you'll always be troubled. The degree that you're uncertain about that is the degree that you'll always be troubled. The more assured you are of who Jesus Christ is in relationship to God the Father and understanding who God is and what he can do and what he has done, the more assured you'll be in your own life and living. And the more unsure you are of that, the more shaky you'll be and the more troubled you'll be at heart. That's why some people have absolutely a horrible, horrible time sleeping sometimes because they get on their minds something that has happened and and some christians for instance someone who's made a, a very clear precise exact biblical decision of salvation and yet something will pop up and go on and they can't sleep for nights and the problem is they got a wrong perception about what how god deals with that i've had people call me on the phone and say pastor i can't sleep i'm troubled about this and, and boy I, I just really need you to pray for me and i said what happened what's going on they'll tell me a scenario a story and i said that's not true that's not the way god deals with that that's not what god's up to that's not how he operates oh it's not well i've been missing sleep for five nights worrying about this how do you know how it happened well because i don't know god very well you believe in god believe also in me and it's to let not your heart be troubled if your heart is troubled, you're misunderstanding something about God, His Son, or your life. If you're out of sorts, then obviously you need to get your life in line with what God says. If it isn't, you're always going to be troubled. And that's the point. And we somehow want to circumvent that and try to change that. By the way, I got a letter. It came across my desk this last week. It really it fits interestingly into the message today. It was entitled, or that is, it had a heading across the top. It says, Who is Jesus? It says, one point no one could dispute is that Jesus has become a pop culture icon. 
First, there was the widely seen Peter Jennings documentary on the search for Jesus. ABC explains that in it, Jennings searching for the clues of who Jesus was, what he can know about his childhood, about his brief adult life, and the circumstances of a death. Mel Gibson's movie then comes out last year, brought Jesus under the big screen and into public disclosure, and in a way, never before seen. Jesus is now on everything from t-shirts to dashboard bobbleheads. The biggest secular talk show in the Los Angeles area now offers listeners the Jesus Show, a weekly call-in program that, according to the station, is hosted by Jesus Christ himself. Most recently, and in more serious tones, Time and Newsweek featured lengthy cover stories on Jesus, his birth. Religious scholars quoted in those kinds of articles prefer to clear up confusion about Jesus by shining on him the light of modern science and thought. The problem of what is being said about Jesus by today's scholars and pundits is simply that for the most part, they've got it all completely wrong. The fact is, much of the sophisticated, scholarly pursuit of real Jesus these days is nothing more than a veiled effort to attack, dismiss, and to discredit the Holy Scriptures. And he's right. The Jesus described in today's media isn't the result of an honest but inept attempt to truth. It's a hatchet job designed to disfigure and destroy the Jesus of the Bible. Why do people so consistently attack the biblical record and the plain truth about Jesus and his claims? In a word, it's about authority. People don't want to accept the Jesus of the Bible, his deity, virgin birth, sinless life, teachings, and his miracles, his death, or his resurrection, because if they do, they're forced to deal with a staggering implication that that brings. If Jesus is God, you can't live just any way you want to. If Jesus is God, he's going to restrict and restrain you. You can't have your immorality, your materialism, your pride, and your hatred, and no more apathy toward divine truth, authority, or eternal punishment. The best way to divest yourself of spiritual obligation is to undermine what the Bible teaches about Christ. You wage an assault on the credibility of the scriptures. You cloak the attack in pious scholarly robes. Instead of dealing with Jesus for who he is, you put him on trial. You turn him into a subject of an academic research project, and instead of Jesus, the Jesus, it's my Jesus. And who is he to me? The elastic Jesus bends and stretches to your specifications, never making any hard demands on your life or your lifestyle. The catastrophic is the millions of people who are targets of a relentless, damning evangelistic campaign. People are being incalculated inoculated, excuse me, to the gospel by being trained to question the Bible's accuracy and discount any of its plain teaching about Christ. After all, if Peter Jennings and the intelligentsia are still looking for clues to who Jesus was or is, the answer must still be out there somewhere. If the seminary professor claims the traditional beliefs about Jesus are wrong, who are we or the rest of us to question what these intelligent people say? And this guy is dead sinner. That's exactly the way it is. They get this idea of saying to us, you know, this Jesus that you're trying to talk about, he's old-fashioned, he doesn't work, it doesn't, isn't real, and it's not possible. Let me tell you something. Is it just not possible that all the people in the world that are so miserable today have been fed a line that Jesus is nothing more than some figment of somebody's imagination? Let me tell you, how is it that all the Christian people that are content at heart, who have really been saved by the grace of God and are certain that when they die they'll go to heaven, how come it is that they make up such a large majority of those in the church community that are at peace at heart and life? By their own statistics, they say that those who attend church regularly are 49% less likely to be in a counseling session in their entire life. 
How come it is that those people who are in that church group are folks who are less likely than anybody else to have what we call restless nights and sleepless nights on basis of things that trouble them? You know why we don't get trouble by that? Because we just, as it, Scripture encourages us, casting all of our care upon Him, for we know He cares for us, and we roll over and go to sleep. Now, if you stay awake worrying about something, I can tell you you violate the Scriptures because it says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto the Lord. His point is, lay it over on me and then go to sleep. Go to sleep. And if you knew your Heavenly Father well and knew Him as your Heavenly Father, you'd know that's exactly what He'd want to do because that's the same thing that a father would walk into a room of a small child and say, Look, I don't know what you're worrying about. Let's just leave it right here. I'll help you take care of it tomorrow. I'm saying to you, my friend, the better you know Him, certainly know Him through His Son first, that's obvious, but the better you do, the more peaceful your heart and the less troubled your life. And this world should at this point know that, but they somehow hate Jesus Christ. It amazes me. I've had a lot of folks sit in my office. In fact, I've had more than I won't over the last years. And I've categorized three things that these people have told me in counseling sessions that are people who come in deeply troubled. And they, and they use various methods and a variety of methods to try to get around what's really the problem. The first one is, and I call it escapism. There's a group of people that come into my office and sit down in front of my desk and we begin to talk and I'll say, exactly what the problem is here. Well, what, what are we dealing with? What is it? Let, let them give you an assessment. And the first thing that comes out is a, a very hectic uh, schedule that's paced at such rapidity that I no way in the world would keep up with it. That's always a signal to any counselor. We make a pride of it in America about being so busy Sometimes being so busy to a counselor means you're escaping something. What are you running from? What is it that you don't want to face if you got alone and got quiet? If you're so busy, why are you so busy? What contribution are you making to your family, to your own life and maturity and growing and so forth and to your church and to all the things that really matter in life? How come it is that you're so busy about these things that don't matter a bit? You see, those folks who come to my office that are going and coming and doing and never letting themselves get alone for any quiet time, there's always this concern. What are you running from? By the way, most of them can finally tell me, I'll tell you what it is. Here's what it is. And some of them, I think, will live longer now because they've unloaded the problem and they're not running the race like they were. They quit running or like a, 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 one of these things running in this cage, you know. It's not a groundhog, but what is the thing? I'll bite, hamster. That's what it is. You know, you ever seen one of those guys just run himself to death, busy as all get out, and you say, what's he doing this for? And no reason. No reason. That's what I tell those folks in the counseling. I say, that's what you're doing. There's no reason for your hurry schedule, except there is something you're running from. What is it? And as I said, they'll often break, so, okay, here's what it is. How do we fix it? Second group is, I call them the optimists. And I'm, I'm generally, I'm a realist. I, I don't say that I'm an optimist. I'm a realist. Uh, I don't, I believe that Murphy's Law is, in fact, a factor. You know, um, I believe that things go wrong. They'll probably go wrong for me. But that's fair. I'm not worthy of them being right all the time. I'm, I'm just not. I don't deserve that. I'm a human being 
and I do some dumb things to fix things that eventually tear up worse than they were in the first place. I mean, that's just the way it is. So I accept that. That's just part of it. So, yeah, it's, if it can go wrong at my house, it'll probably go wrong. But that's okay. That's the way it probably ought to be with me. That's what I deserve. So I'm not a glowing, smiley optimist all day. Everything just I have people come in my office that they put this fake smile on, and from the get-go, it's, everything's just going to be fine. I just want to come by and touch base with you about a couple little things here and there. And we get to talking, and, man, they got a mountain of mess in their life, and all this fuzzy, fake optimism is just covering it up. And when we get down to start unlayering it and laying things back and getting down to really where the hurt is, they come clean and say, you know, I've been hiding this for years. I just need to deal with it. I just need to face it. And it's an interesting thing. The smile goes off their face. They become real people. And they're not trying to pretend anything. They're not trying to make you think there's something they're not. They're just, here's who I am and here's what I feel and here's how I'm dealing with this. How do I fix it? Then there's a third group. This third group is a group that I think, honestly, I can tell you, I hear more, see more, and talk to more who fit this group than any of the other two. I call it the group who are fatalist. Fatalist. And I mean by that, in the last two weeks, I've heard uh, someone say the very thing that describes this group of people. And this is a quote that came from one of the sessions with a person. They said, whatever will be, will be, and all the care, concern, thinking, and praying I will do will not change that one iota. That's a growing problem. It's called fatalism. They just give up. They just say it doesn't work. It's not working. I mean, none of it's working. You know, I try and I do this and I do that, and it ain't changing. And so I just give up. Well, maybe that's what God wants them to do, to come to the end of themselves even as these were professing believers and say, hey, look, I've been doing it wrong. I want to do it right. But what's so sad about it is all the suffering these folks have gone through, both from the standpoint of, of this person who is in this optimism mode and these people who are in this escape mode, they've gone through this all this time and they just continue. And all the time they were suffering, suffering out of sight maybe, but nonetheless suffering. And only when they come to face that something was wrong in their life and their heart did they deal with these matters and then to get out of these clown suits and begin to be who they really are. You see, what you need to be is who you are, not what we, quote, expect you to be. You need to be who you really are before the Lord under the direction of His Word. And let Him groom you and grace you and change you and mature you into what He wants. And don't you dare let this world make you dress up in some concocted form just so you be more acceptable to them. And I say to you that in doing that, the fact of the matter is that if you are truly a born-again Christian, there's going to be suffering in your life. That's a given. And there's no need of you trying to disguise what you're suffering. If it's a suffering because you take a stand for Christ, you hold your own for Christ, or you live for Christ in an, an environment that's not good and acceptable to that, then accept that. But don't hide from it. Don't escape it with just getting yourself so busy that you, you just refuse to accept that as being the problem. And I say to you this morning that there's many people, many people in this community who are right this moment, this hour, who are suffering, and they probably think it's for Christ's sake. They think it's probably within the will of God. I submit to you some of that may be that the Lord is using the suffering to bring them to a right relationship with Himself. And I believe He does that. 
I believe there are people in this church who could now stand up and give testimony to the fact that in their life, they see it now, they didn't see it then, but they saw it, they see it now, they didn't see it back when it happened. They could say, look, I see how God brought suffering into my life, physical suffering, to bring me to a right relationship with Himself. I see that now. Didn't see it then, but I see it now. And I accept that. And I can move on with that. But I say to you, if you get to a point where you think that life is just going to be a bowl of cherries and and ice cream, I'm telling you, you're going to be in for shock because the Scriptures are very clear. It is a fact that if you are in God's will, that is an heir of God, that it is God's will that you will suffer. Because it'll be God's will that you stand up for Christ, that you speak up for Christ, that you're a witness for Christ, and you can't do any of those things in this world without it bringing reproach on you because it's already brought reproach on Christ, and He said so. They hated me, they'll hate you. If you really stand out for Christ, now if you just if you just blend, you can sit back, relax, and get your glass of tea in the shade. No problem. You will not suffer. But if you don't blend in, if you stand up straight and say, I'm a Christian, and it doesn't matter who knows it. I stand on the principles of God's Word, and if it comes down to matters of, of homosexuality, of abortion, whatever the going issue may be, here's where I stand, and I stand on that because it's a Bible place to stand. I'll guarantee you, you're not going to be the going to win Person of the Year award to the world. My point is, you need to accept that. That's who we are as Christian people. We need to accept that. Do we go around and act like a bunch of martyrs? And absolutely not. Because here's the good news. We win in the end. We win in the end. We win in the end. And I say to you that because we are winners, because it's a done deal at that end, and God's ordained and decreed that, then the fact of the matter is what we need to do is live for Him right here, right now, and do it in such a way that it affects those people who think they can live any way they want to and get away with it. Because they can't. I hope this morning that suffering won't be quite the fearful cobra in the grass that it has been to so many people. But understand it's a part of being a Christian. When you stand up and stand tall and straight and do it in a kind and gracious and loving way, you'll still suffer for it. But you can suffer for Christ's sake. And as this passage says so clearly, verse 17, we suffer with Him, we'll be glorified with Him. That's a guarantee that if you suffer for Christ and with Christ, it's a guarantee. You're not going to be an unbeliever and suffer for or with Christ. That's a given. That's the point. That's the point of uh, what we call a checkpoint of proof. Truth. You're just not going to do it if you're not saved by the grace of God. Nobody's going to suffer willingly for something they do not believe in. That's why we've said all along about the business of Christ dying on the cross and the resurrection. Why would the disciples have, have lied and done what they did to give their lives for a lie? It would have been the most foolish thing at the resurrection. If they had the body of Jesus Christ, they would have surely produced it. But they didn't because they didn't have it and they didn't die for a lie. And so I say to you, Christ doesn't expect you to suffer for a lie. He expects you to suffer if you know Him as Savior as you stand up in a godless world for Him and for, as it were, a testimony in His behalf. question is, do you know Christ? Not do you know God, not do you feel religious, not do you belong to a church, and not have you been baptized, and not do you say a prayer over a meal. None of that. That may be true of you, but what's important and imperative is that there's been a time in your life where you said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. The Bible declares that, and I believe it. 
And right here, right now, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as my only Savior. And you invite him into your life to be your Savior and set out to live for him. Has there ever been such a time? That's the key issue. Because to know the Father, you have to know the Son. And that's how you get to know him, is come to him by simple, childlike faith. Bow your heads with me, please, our Father in heaven, as we come to the close of this message. Important truth that we often do not take seriously is that there's a need of suffering in the believer's life. It is part of the process. It's a part of the, the thing of our being assured that we belong to Christ, that we suffer for him and suffer with him. And so this morning, I pray you'll help us to understand that it doesn't mean that we're suffering for our salvation, that is to gain merit for it. That's already a done deal if we've been born again. Christ did all that. This suffering is that to be, as it were, willing to suffer for him as a witness, as a testimony in a dead and dying world. And I pray that we would be willing to do that. And it would be from our hearts. It would be representative of our concern for others to come to know Christ as we know him and to live for him. So I pray this morning you'll work in every life of every heart and bring people, men, women, boys, and girls, to say a salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We commit the message to you to finish and conclude it in the hearts of the people here and pray that you'll bless and use it to speak to every heart. Bear none. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Turn to 282. Just as I am, if God has spoken to your heart this morning, if you're here and you have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, we'd be delighted to help you and counsel you. And we'd be happy for you to come forward as we sing this first line and first verse of this invitation song. Allow someone to take a Bible and you to a side room and show you from the Scriptures how you can know Christ and know it for certain. So if God has spoken to your heart, let me invite you to come. Or if you need to come for baptism or church membership, we invite you to come. We'd encourage you, of course, that you know Christ and be sure of that first. But if you're here without Christ, please allow us to help you this morning. Come to know him. As we sing 282, verse number one. Together, please. Just as I am without one. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you very much for your time and your attention. I'm grateful for your being with us this morning. I hope you'll come back to the evening service tonight. We'll have communion this evening, and Brother Ryan Mitchell will be preaching. So I hope you'll bring your Bible and come along. May the Lord bless you and give you a good afternoon. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, bless the Word now that's gone forth in Sunday school and now here in the worship service. And I pray, remind us of these truths. Help us not to take them lightly. Help us to understand the responsibility we have to speak up and to stand up for you in this very pagan society in which we live. This world that hated our Savior, remind us that it'll hate us too if we do that which we ought. And only as we blend in and we fit in will it become a matter that we will not have the 
tremendous suffering to go through, as did our Lord. And I pray, therefore, help us to be faithful and diligent, to take our stand for Christ, to be the witness we ought to be, and do what we can to point many to righteousness. Bless now through the afternoon and evening. Bless Brian as he opens the scriptures to us this evening. Prepare hearts even now for that which we'll receive, and bless the communion table. May we be a blessing to one another as we come to join around this table, this identifying identification with the Lord Jesus Christ and his suffering, his death, and his return. Guide us as we go now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed. <laughs>